So we live in an era of post-truth. Have you heard that? We live in the era of post-truth. We're past truth. <laughs> not interesting. Truth is not, accordingly, according to uh, the experts, <clears throat> truth is not an objective reality anymore. It is subject and based on opinion. Truth is not an objective reality anymore. It is subjective and based on your opinion. That's why you hear words or expressions like alternative truth. If I were to ask you, even within this church, to vote on which of the following sources... Now, Charlie, I don't want you to yell out. Don't yell out. No. Okay. If I were to ask you to vote on which of the following two sources of news is fake news... Fox or the New York Times, I know that there would be significant differences even within this body of believers. But both would claim truth. And since the dawn of time, people have bolstered their statements of fact, their claims or their expressions of commitment. So their claims and their commitments with seeming assurances of proof of sincerity. I swear on my dead mother's grave. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my life. Some of these oaths, our vows, or vows, have actually been institutionalized in our culture and in our country. <laughs> if you've been following the impeachment trial in the United States, you heard this uh, expression over and over and over again, the oath of office. So anyone that serves in government in Canada and the United States takes an oath of office. Doctors... Therese here, she must have taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm, right? And other things. Um, witnesses in a trial, they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And many of us have made vows on our wedding day to our spouse. When you think of that, it, it's kind of a curious thing, isn't it? Why does putting our hand on a Bible give greater assurance of truthfulness? Why are oaths and vows accepted to be more weighty, more trustworthy statements than simply being honest people? Well, the reason is because essentially we're sinful people. <laughs> and there's suspicion everywhere in our world. And so we choose these artifacts, in some cases, and we put our hand on them. And somehow that gives more credibility to what you're about to say, or a commitment that you're going to bring to bear. You know, we simply don't handle the truth all that well. 
to the extent that in this highly developed, which I think is, the more and more I think of it, is increasingly more and more ironic, this in, incredibly developed and sophisticated culture in which we live, there's no such thing as truth anymore. Jesus actually spoke to this issue in his Sermon on the Mount. He said these words in Matthew 5. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't even make even one hair white or black. That was... That we can, of course. <laughs> All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that, anything beyond this, comes from the evil one. James, some believe to be the half-brother of Jesus, at least they believe his letter is from the half-brother of Jesus. Reinforce these words of Jesus in James 5. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is simple, a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. So the question is, what is the evil intent involved in oaths and vows? Remember he said, anything else comes from the evil one. We really need to keep these words of Jesus into, in the context in which they were given. They were given into a cultural context, and they were also given into the context of a sermon. Right? Jesus has been speaking about a righteousness that surpasses the shallow, skin-deep righteousness espoused and practiced by the Pharisees. He's been talking about a true righteousness that exceeds their righteousness, which we now know comes through Christ alone. And these words, just like the other words of the sermon, would have clearly sent up red, red flags amongst the Pharisees. Why? Because they could be construed to contradict the law. Because if you read in the law, you'll see instructions to use oaths and vows. Deuteronomy 6, fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Deuteronomy 10, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. The Mosaic law also required vows. 
If you make a vow, Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And then we read in Ecclesiastes, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. So the Pharisees would take these words of Jesus, do not swear by or make oaths, they would just be adding this, the Pharisees would, to their arsenal of evidence that they're compiling to prove that Jesus was a lawbreaker and a heretic. But what about now, us, as Christians? No longer under the old covenant, Mosaic law. We, what are we to make of, of Jesus' words? Particularly when we read that the Apostle Paul made oaths and vows. 2 Corinthians 1, 23, Paul writes, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. So he was explaining in his letter that he didn't dare come to them because if he came to them, he was going to call them out on some bad stuff. So here is Paul making an oath before God, as well as on his life, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And then we also know that, that Paul took a vow Hard to understand, but in Acts 18, Luke writes, before he sailed, he had this, his hair cut off at Centria because of the vow he had taken. So we have the Pharisees hearing the words of Jesus and saying, you're a lawbreaker. And we hear the words of Jesus and then we see that the Apostle Paul did the very thing that Jesus said not to do. What are we to make of this? Context, context is just so, so very important. So often, you probably heard it, people say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. Without context, Scripture is subject to the accusation of contradiction. But that context will help us understand, I believe, this issue, this seeming contradiction that we have. I want us to make sure that we understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is speaking. Let's retrace Jesus' last comments in his sermon. He's, he's pointing out the inadequate claims of the Pharisees who claim to be the models and the gatekeepers of righteousness. 
and is accusing them of obeying the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Remember, he wrote about murder and adultery. He says, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit murder or don't commit adultery. And then he starts with these four words in both instances, addressing both of them. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In relation to adultery, as we've seen, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then last week, we took a look at his words about divorce. And he starts off, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, what Jesus is saying here, we have to be clear of, is that to violate the spirit of the law is no different than to violate the letter of the law. To violate the spirit of the law is no different than to violate the letter of the law. And so we see these words next, after he's spoken about murder, adultery, and divorce, and the word that sticks out, and we have to make sure that we notice it, is again. <laughs> again, which is to say, in keeping with what I just said, again, and then he uses those four words again. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. We have to conclude that Jesus is referring not to the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law when he's saying these things. Take note of the oaths that he's referring to. Swearing by heaven, by God's throne, by earth, by Jerusalem, by your head. So what's going on here? The context within the sermon we see, but what about the context within the religious life or the culture of the first century? Jew. Well, it seems that the Pharisees were being called out by Jesus for promoting the eye of deceitfully using sacred or holy alternatives. Alternatives to God to endorse their half-hearted, misleading oaths and vows. Let me say that again. It seems like the Pharisees were being called out by Jesus for promoting the idea of deceitfully using sacred alternatives, heaven, God's throne, earth, Jerusalem, right? To endorse sort of half-baked, half-intended, misleading oaths and vows. But at the same time, they're ensuring not to invoke the wrath of God by not saying, I swear by God. You see? It's a technicality, right? It's a loophole. 
If I swear by heaven, and I don't really know my facts, to be honest, I'm just saying it. If I swear by Jerusalem, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to fulfill that commitment. <laughs> if I violate my oath, or I violate my vow, I've got a loophole with God. I didn't swear by God. Therefore, no consequences. It's hard to believe, eh? Pretty sneaky thinking. Jesus is saying God isn't fooled. <laughs> he knows your heart. Your vows and oaths are still a violation of the law. The spirit of the law. Remember, the spirit of the law, to violate it, is just the same as violating the letter. But he's saying you are violating the spirit of the law by making all of these oaths based on holy alternatives, like Jerusalem, like heaven, like your own head. If you swear by heaven, you're still swearing by God. Because heaven is God's throne. Jerusalem is God's city. God isn't fooled. And so when you play fast and loose with commitments and claims that you're not fully committed to and you don't really know what you're talking about. Jesus is saying, God doesn't play that game. <laughs> he knows your heart and you're still guilty of breaking an oath and a vow to God. Theologian and teacher James Boyce identifies this practice, and I want us to read it together, as evasive swearing. The Jews of Jesus' day had put an interesting twist on all of this. They had trouble telling the truth consistently, just like you and I do. So in order to guard themselves against being found guilty of swearing falsely by the name of God, it seems that they had firmly established the habit of swearing by everything except God. They wanted to add some kind of force to their promises to make their words more credible, but they didn't want to incur the judgment of God by swearing something in his name when they didn't fully intend to make it good or, or when it was not entirely true. They wanted to have their moldy cake and eat it too. So they created what was in effect a lesser class of oaths. Oaths that were bound to various parts of God's creation rather than to God himself. This is the practice of evasive swearing. It's a game. This explains Jesus' words, you know, in that section where Jesus in his last week of his, uh, before his crucifixion, he he just laid into the Pharisees and he said, Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Well, here's one case. And it, and it just kind of shows this whole convoluted, upside down, twisty, curvy, nonsensical approach to trying to 
bolster claims and commitments while at the same time protecting yourself from having consequences for not fulfilling Woe to you, Matthew 23, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. So they've got these sort of like <laughs> the strata of, 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 of what's binding and what's not binding, but none of it is to God. Because there could be consequences for breaking your oath to God. Right? You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You who say if someone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one God who sits on it. <coughs> so, when you look at Jesus' words that we have started off with today, his words about not swearing an oath, And you look at it within the context of what he's already said about murder and adultery, divorce, and so on. And you look at it within the context of the religious practices, what was going on with oaths and vows. I think you can come to some conclusions. The first one is this. To invoke the name of God in an oath or a vow is seen by God as binding. So if you are invoking the name of God in something you are swearing, you better do it. <laughs> I don't believe that Jesus is contradicting, based on the context, the idea of oaths and vows. Jesus didn't come to abolish such oaths and vows as much as to emphasize their significance, much like he did the significance of certificates of divorce, hatred, and lust being the equivalent of adultery and murder. Jesus is addressing the disingenuous practice of making oaths and vows on anything other than God. He's confronting the evil practice of misleading people by deceitfully adding significance to claims and commitments by swearing by something other than God. Quite simply, he is saying it's better just to be honest and do what you say you'll do. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Once again, the Pharisees wanted to bolster their claims and commitments just because it made them look pious. They're all about appearance. while at the same time they didn't want to be held accountable for these claims and commitments. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. So, I want to conclude with some applications about oaths and vows. A general application is that Jesus is telling us to be people of integrity. 
not making claims or commitments that you don't intend to keep or that you really don't know much about. Have you done that? Have you said stuff that you weren't sure about, but you kind of threw on some kind of, you know, I swear. Have you made a commitment? But then not follow through and not been sure that you were even going to be able to fulfill that commitment by throwing on something really impressive. We're to be people of integrity. We need to make our commitments and our claims with sincerity and seriousness. A specific application is that if you are going to make an oath, that you be very earnest and serious about it. Because it is an important thing. We have just so diminished credibility in our culture, the post-truth culture. That's, it's really refreshing when someone <laughs> seriously considers what they're saying and is earnest. Jesus is pointing out the sinfulness of using oaths to bolster what you're saying. Now, we need to understand that not everyone agrees with me. Some of you might be aware of this. John Piper, for instance, who I just think is awesome, and I read him to, you know, check my thoughts. John Piper, for instance, finds even the practice of making oaths dishonoring to God and unnecessary for a follower of Christ. He was once asked, based on the teachings of Jesus in what we've just done in the Sermon on the Mount, if it was wrong to swear an oath on a Bible in a court of law. Interesting, eh? And he discouraged Christians from doing it and said that he would say this instead. Your Honor, my commitment to the truth and to the Lord of the truth, Jesus Christ, leads me to believe that it would be a dishonor, or it would dishonor both my commitment to the Lord and to the Lord himself if I needed to put my hand on the sacred book to guarantee my truthfulness. I'm totally committed to the truth and to the Lord of truth. So I ask that I be permitted to act without such an oath. But I do promise in reliance on the help of the Lord Jesus to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He's never tried it out <laughs> in a court of law. He said he'd do it if ever he had to. Interesting, eh? But he sees it as dishonoring to God because... He's committed to the truth. And it seems like it cheapens what he says 
or what he's about to say by having to put his hand on a Bible. For the next two weeks, uh, Larry and I are going to be presenting two differing views of the next words in the Sermon on the Mount. There are the excerpts on an eye for an eye and love for enemies. An eye for an eye and love for enemies. Next week, Larry is going to present his view from his theological background. How he grew up. And I suspect how he feels, believes. The following week, I will present the truth. <laughs> you know what? I, I want to correct you a little bit. I'm not going to present on what I grew up with. Okay. What you've arrived at. I'm going to present on what I think the teachings of Jesus are. Yeah. Good enough. On that whole idea of an eye for an eye. Now you know where we're going, right? Pacifism, right? Versus executing justice with force. Right? So it'll be interesting. What's your background, Larry? Anabaptist. Anabaptist tradition. Right? What's my background? I'm a mixed up. I'm one of, one of those Heinz 57s. <laughs> but I'll actually be presenting the more common strain of thinking, I think, in the church. Larry will be presenting something that he holds really strongly to uh, from the Anabaptist tradition. So it'll be interesting. But all this to say, as a the conclusion of what I've just said, John Piper and I disagree on this. Now, John Piper, I don't even, you know, <laughs> I'm not in that league at all, okay? But I would suggest that most commonly, most evangelical Christians put their hand on the Bible and give a note. They don't say something like that. But I really respect what he says there. I think that's pretty cool. Um, and certainly not wrong. <laughs> but there's, there's room for interpretation, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. We're getting there. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and thank you for this awesome sermon that you gave. And <laughs> I love the fact that um, your word on several occasions says that when you spoke, you spoke with such authority that people really took it to heart. And so, Lord, I thank you that you spoke from your heart about the kingdom of God. I pray that you'd help us as we try to navigate this life as followers of Christ and do the things that you want us to do. Help us to be people of integrity, not people who have a reputation for saying one thing and doing the other. And help us not to be deceitful, to try to bolster our claims or our commitments by making oaths and vows that we 
really can't commit to. Pray this in Jesus' name.